This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 223. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you informed on my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part three of my comedic portal fantasy, The Dark Lord Steve. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 221 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Steve found out how the sorcerer Galvero had gotten his name in order to summon him. Steve's friend and co-worker, Rashid, had been summoned by another sorcerer named Alzarius. He had enjoyed it at first, but after a while, he was being summoned so often and kept for so long that it was interfering with his ability to function in his real life. So, in exchange for his freedom, Rashid traded Alzarius the company's directory, giving him a list of hundreds of people in their specialties. Alzarius then transcribed the names into his summoning book, which eventually fell into the hands of Galvero, who had been the sorcerer's stable boy. When Rashid learned that Galvero was the one summoning Steve, he gave Steve Galvero's true name, which Alzarius had told him, to prevent Galvero from ever gaining power over Rashid. Rashid also had a theory about how this whole summoning business works. There's a hypothesis that says that the world we live in is actually a highly realistic simulation, programmed by beings with almost limitless energy and processing power at their disposal. If that's true, then there could theoretically be an unlimited number of these simulations, each with its own life forms and physical laws. Rashid and Steve may have been transported from one of these simulations to another, and like the player characters in a video game, they can do amazing things in that world, things that the simulation's own inhabitants could never do. Of course, if that's true, it leaves unanswered the question of who the programmers are, and what, if anything, is actually real. The next time Galvero summoned Steve, Steve was prepared for it. He spoke Galvero's true name, and immediately Galvero's binding spell lost its power to contain him. Unfortunately, this did not change the fact that the magic circle had a tremendous amount of energy stored in it, and when Steve broke the circle, that energy was explosively released. Steve was shot out of the tower like a human cannonball, and he got only a brief view of the castle in the surrounding countryside before he fell back to earth, landing in a cloud of smoke and a pile of rubble. The Dark Lord Steve Written and read by Chris Lester Part 3 Steve awoke to the sound of a woman screaming. 
His head felt like a building had fallen on it. Or vice versa, which in this case was actually more accurate. His skin was covered in a caked-on layer of ash and dust. His clothes had been torn and burned by the explosion, and were barely clinging to his body. He took a deep breath as he woke, and his diaphragm spasmed, triggering a vicious coughing fit. He sat up, tried to wipe the grime out of his eyes, then bent double, continuing to cough and hack and spit as the building's residue worked its way out of his system. Through all of this, the screaming did not abate. When at last he could see again, he peered down from his pile of rubble at the source of the noise. The woman stood in the tower's single doorway, which had been enlarged significantly by the explosion. The door that had once occupied the space had been blasted to splinters. These now filled the outside hallway, along with several hundred pounds of rocks and pebbles, which presumably had once been part of the wall. She was a rather plain-looking young woman, maybe in her mid-twenties at most, with blue eyes, light brown hair, an upturned nose, and pale skin that was heavily freckled from the sun. She wore a shapeless dress of rough-spun linen, a stain-spattered apron, and a white bonnet that covered her hair completely. She clutched at her chest and stared at the wreckage, and especially at Steve, who had apparently survived the explosion with no more than a nasty headache. Ah! she said, for what felt like the four hundredth time. Ma'am, Steve croaked, his voice gone hoarse from the dust and the coughing. Ah! she said again. Ma'am, please stop, Steve began. Ah! she said. This time she pointed a shaking finger at him. Steve sighed, closed his eyes, and snapped his fingers. The screaming immediately became muffled. He opened his eyes again and looked. As he had imagined, the woman was now contained inside a giant plexiglass tube, similar to the bulletproof windows that hung in front of bank tellers in some of the rougher parts of the city. The woman continued screaming and pounded on the plastic walls to boot, but at least now it was quiet enough that he could hear himself think. After a minute or two, his headache lessened enough that Steve could get up and maintain his balance. He descended the pile of rubble and examined what was left of the room. The dust and ash covered everything, but he brushed some of it aside and found the charred, blackened lines of the pentagram underneath. He poked around in the debris for a few minutes, but he found no trace of Galvero's body. Actually, that wasn't quite true. Galvero's remains were present. They were just indistinguishable from the remains of everything else that had been inside the tower when the blast occurred, such as the Tome of Alzarius. Steve spat out more of the ash and dust, feeling vaguely queasy. Fuck, he muttered. Galvero's summoning spell was broken, but Steve was still here, not back home where he belonged. The person who might have been able to tell him why was going to spend the next three months getting dusted off shelves in the town outside, along with the book that might have let Steve figure it out for himself. Which means I have no idea how to get home. Dimly, he became aware that the muffled screaming and pounding had ceased. He looked over and saw the woman sitting on the floor, leaning against the side of the tube, 
watching him with a look of vague confusion. Her eyelids fluttered, and she seemed to be giggling to herself. He'd heard that was a sign of oxygen deprivation. Shit, Steve thought. I forgot about air holes. He snapped his fingers and made the tube vanish. The woman slumped forward, and Steve crouched at her side. Hey, he said, shaking her shoulder a little. Hey, are you all right? The woman raised her head and blinked at him. Demon, she whispered. Call me Steve, Steve said. Um, shit, hang on. He closed his eyes, formed a picture in his mind, and snapped his fingers. The wreckage in the middle of the room vanished, replaced by a perfect copy of his bed back home. Steve tried to pick the woman up and carry her to the bed, but either she was heavier than she looked, or Steve was weaker than he would have thought. Not like I spend a lot of time picking up women, in either sense. He tried to get her to her feet, but she just flopped around limply. Steve wished he'd spent more time at the gym. But then a thought struck him, and he grinned. I can change all sorts of other things. What if I can change me, too? So he closed his eyes and pictured himself with bigger, stronger muscles, a broader chest, and well-toned abs, like one of his favorite superheroes. He imagined himself being able to pick up cars and stop speeding subway trains. Then he snapped his fingers. There was an immense sound of tearing fabric, and the last bits of Steve's clothing fell away. He looked down and saw someone else's body, a hero's body. He flexed his arms, watched the muscles pop, and grinned again. Steve Rogers, eat your heart out. He got his arms under the woman and lifted her as easily as a ten-pound sack of potatoes. Gently, he laid her down on the bed, propping her head up with the pillows. She let out what sounded like a contented sigh. There you go, Steve said, a bit awkwardly. The woman's breathing was steady, and her eyelids fluttered, but she made no response. Steve worried that he might have caused some kind of brain damage. You idiot, he told himself. You almost suffocated this woman and barely even thought about it. If you're going to be walking around with godlike powers, you'd better be a lot more fucking careful. He conjured a chair, and a pair of shorts, for modesty's sake then sat by the bedside, watching and waiting. He tried to imagine her brain and body whole, healthy and undamaged, but there was no flash, and nothing about her seemed to change. He kept waiting. He thought about praying, but he didn't know if they even had gods in this world, other than the mysterious programmers, if Rashid's theory was right. A small eternity later, the woman took a deep breath and let it out. Her eyelids lifted halfway, and she looked around at the bed with an expression of wonder. Oh, good, you're awake, Steve said, perking up. The woman's head turned in his direction. Her eyes widened as she saw his new, muscular body, and a blush crept into her cheeks. But then her eyes went even wider, and her face went pale just as fast. Please don't scream, Steve said quickly. Can you, um... Can you understand me? Pause. Then, a nod. Oh, good, Steve said, with a flash of relief that faded seconds later. Look, um, I'm sorry about that thing with the tube. 
I just... You kept screaming, and I wasn't trying to scare you, but I really need somebody who can tell me what's going on. And it was the first thing that popped into my head, and... And... He trailed off. The woman was watching him with a strange expression. Confusion, maybe. And fear. And maybe something else. He sighed and looked down at his hands. And that's not an excuse, he finished. It wasn't right. I'm sorry. The woman didn't respond. She just kept staring at him with that look that Steve didn't quite understand. After a moment, he got up and started heading for the doorway. I'll stop bothering you now, he said. A pause, then. I really am sorry. He had almost reached the doorway when the woman called out to him. Wait. Steve stopped and turned back. The woman was sitting up in the bed now, her head tipped to one side, as if that might give her a clearer perspective on him. Why didn't you do this? she asked, gesturing down at the bed. Steve shrugged, feeling foolish. Well, like I said, I didn't mean to hurt you. I... I wanted to make sure you were okay. I was, um, trying to be nice. A faint frown creased the woman's brow. You were sorry, she said slowly. You felt... Ashamed? She sounded like the word was one she didn't use often, even in her own language, and it had taken her a second to remember how to say it. Steve's cheeks flushed. Yeah. But you are a demon, she said. Demons do not know shame. I'm not a demon, Steve insisted. I'm just like this guy from another world. I can't do any of this crazy stuff at home. It only happens when I come here. He tried to imagine something random that he could summon into his hand, just for a demonstration. For some reason, a bouquet of flowers appeared. He imagined a vase with some water and stuck them into it, then brought it back to the bed. Uh, here, have some flowers. He made a nightstand appear next to the bed and set the vase on it. The woman watched all this with a look of wide-eyed wonder. Thank you, she whispered. Steve sat back down next to her. I'm Steve, he said again. What's your name? A bit of wariness crept back into her eyes. Master Galvero said we should never tell a demon our names. Steve sighed again. Right. He thought back to when he had used Galvero's real name, and how his power was suddenly able to affect the sorcerer's pentagram when it hadn't before. How does that work, exactly? What does it do? The woman blushed. I don't know, Steve. I'm just a maid. Master Galvero didn't teach me any magic. He just said that your name is a part of you, and if you give it to someone with magic, they can affect you and things that are yours. Steve frowned thoughtfully. Huh. So I can do whatever I want with stuff that's mine, but if it's yours, then I could only change it if I knew your name? I suppose so, the woman said. Steve reached into the vase and picked out one of the flowers, a daisy with white petals and a bright yellow center. He gestured at her with the flower. 
I gave this to you, so it's yours now, right? She nodded. Then he focused on the daisy, tried to turn the petals pink. Nothing happened. He put it back in the vase, conjured an identical daisy into his hand, and repeated the process. This time, the petals turned pink immediately. He grinned up at her. That's pretty sweet. She cocked her head at him again, showing him a puzzled smile. I don't think you're supposed to eat it, she said. Steve laughed. Well, I get why you don't want to give me your name, but I feel like I should call you something besides Hey You. He handed the flower to her. Can I call you Daisy? She looked down at the flower and smiled again. The expression seemed more genuine this time, and it lit up her face in a way that Steve hadn't expected. She reached out and took the flower. All right. Daisy, she said. Daisy helped Steve choose some new clothes that wouldn't look too out of place, then led him on a tour around the castle. For the last ten years it had belonged to Galvero, who had purchased it from an aging baron whose sons had all been killed in a recent war. The baron and his wife had gotten a nice retirement fund, and the sorcerer had gotten the land, the fortress, and the tenant farmers who worked the nearby fields. After the baron's death, his overlord had bestowed the title on Galvero in turn, and things had gone on pretty much as they always had, except that the new baron had a tendency to summon demons to help him. Not surprisingly, Galvero's crop yields were the best in the reach. The town stood between the castle's keep and the outer curtain wall, and mostly served as a safe place for the farmers to sleep. There were a few skilled laborers here as well. A blacksmith, a brewer, several seamstresses, a medicine woman, and a cooper, which Steve learned was a person who made barrels. For other things, they had to depend on itinerant merchants and craftsmen, who rode a circuit between towns to trade their goods and services. Nearly everything in the town and the castle had belonged to Galvero. The farmers were not technically slaves, but they worked their fields on a sort of long-term lease, and most of what they grew went to their lord as payment. Daisy and the other household servants didn't even have that much. They were paid in room and board, and maybe a few coins at certain holidays, if the baron was feeling generous. Sure, they could leave whenever they wanted, but they had nowhere to go, and no way to get there. Steve was starting to feel a lot less sorry about blowing the guy up. So who owns this place now? he asked, as they made their way through the kitchens. Daisy made a gesture with both hands. He didn't recognize it, but it seemed roughly equivalent to a shrug. I don't know. Master Galvero didn't have any heirs. He had talked about taking an apprentice some day, but I don't think he trusted anyone enough to teach them. Steve didn't find that hard to believe. What happens if there isn't an heir? Daisy's expression darkened. The overlord will give the land to another vassal, she said, her voice subdued. Someone who has earned his favor. And that's bad, Steve guessed. She made that shrug gesture again. It's hard to say. Master Galvera was stern and demanding, but the land prospered under him. The next lord could be anything. Cruel and stupid, or kind and incompetent, or generous and wasteful. Her eyes drifted down to the floor. 
and a new lord usually comes with followers of his own. He will give them the best jobs, the best land. We will have to make do with whatever is left. Steve stared at her, appalled. Dude, so if the new boss doesn't like you, there's nothing you can do? You're just fucked? Daisy gasped. Her cheeks turned bright scarlet. After a moment, she managed. That, um, that is one of the possibilities. Steve was puzzled by her reaction, until he realized what he'd said, and how it must have sounded in translation. Then he blushed almost as red as Daisy. Oh, shit. Um, I mean, that's awful, Daisy. I really hope that doesn't happen. Daisy shuddered. As do I. But there is nothing to do now but wait and see. Perhaps the gods will be kind. After a moment, she continued walking on, gesturing for Steve to follow her. He did so, but a sinking feeling was growing in his gut. Galvero may have been a bad guy, but it sounded like Steve hadn't done Daisy and the others any favors by getting rid of him. Perhaps the gods will be kind, she had said. Steve cast a suspicious glance at the ceiling. Whatever gods, or programmers, were behind this place, he didn't think being nice to the little people was one of their priorities. Steve thought about the way he had sometimes treated the NPCs in the video games he played. One time, he had stolen a shopkeeper's entire stock, including the man's own clothes, then ran away and laughed while the man stood there, bewildered, in nothing but his underwear. No, Steve was pretty sure the gods were not going to be kind to someone like Daisy. You made this mess, he told himself. You're gonna have to fix it. But first, he would have to understand the rules of the game. He caught up to Daisy and fell into pace alongside her. She started explaining how the cooks prepared and stored food for the winter. Steve conjured a pencil and a pad of paper and started taking notes. And that's the end of part three. Come back next time when Steve and Daisy face the problem of Galvero's successor. Hey there, folks. Chris Lester coming to you unscripted for this week's outro. Well, boy, how things change in a week. By now, I'm sure that pretty much everybody who's hearing this is on some degree of lockdown or social distancing, and uh, that can be really hard. So I'm really glad to be able to continue to bring you guys these stories in order to help with that feeling of boredom and isolation. Out here in Wisconsin, we are not yet on full lockdown, but we are engaged in pretty extensive social distancing. I've had to change the hours that I'm working at the lab in order to reduce contact with other people. So I'm going to be basically working an afternoon shift from two o'clock to whenever I can get done with my testing and I'll only be going into the lab on days when I actually have testing that needs to be done. Everything else is going to be done from home. So that is reducing my risk of contact. And fortunately, I am on salary, so 
my uh, income is not going to be impacted by this loss of, of work time. So I'm obviously very grateful for that. My wife, Mel, is uh, still doing some remote work for one of her jobs. She has been pretty much laid off from the other one because it was at a camera store and they are cutting back hours. And, you know, it turns out not a lot of people are buying cameras at a time when we're dealing with pandemic. So that has uh, that has been a hit to our income. Also, she's not booking much in the way of new photography gigs because, Large gatherings are prohibited, and even small gatherings are pretty heavily restricted. So not a lot of people planning weddings right now. Here in the home office, I have gotten the acoustic panels hung on the ceiling. You can probably tell a difference in terms of the audio quality between the opening of this episode and what I'm recording right now. At least I hope you can tell a difference. I'll be honest, the number of panels that I have constructed was intended for a closet, so I don't know how well they're going to work in a 10 by 10 room, but we will see. If I end up needing to build more acoustic panels in order to improve the recording quality, I don't really know how long that's going to take. I'm not going to spend our limited resources right now on going out to buy a bunch of audio equipment, sound-absorbing equipment, when we need to conserve those resources for other things. So for the time being, I think that we're pretty much, you know, what you hear in this episode, in this recording, is kind of where our our recording quality is going to be for the foreseeable future. On the writing front, I'll just be honest, I'm not getting anything written right now. My schedule got shot to hell with the move and getting the new room set up and everything around that. And then this pandemic thing hit, and that is not doing good things for my anxiety, as I'm sure you can guess. So my creative energy is at a a real low point right now. I haven't written anything since pretty much the beginning of February. So uh, that's not great. And... uh, I'm going to try to work on that, but uh, for the time being, I need to focus on the next thing in front of me, which is getting the audio for these next several episodes out and getting ready for, uh, well, (laughs) getting ready for this whole mess to hit us hard in, in this area. We've been fortunate that it hasn't been too severe yet. But the mental pressure about this is is taking up a lot of my energy, as you can probably imagine. So, we will see. I fortunately have a lot of content to bring you guys over the next several months. Once the Dark Lord Steve finishes up, I'm going to get to work on recording Homecoming. And whatever that sounds like, you know, is going to have to be good enough. We'll deal with re-recording stuff with an improved sound environment later, if I have to, for the audiobook. But I want to make sure to keep this podcast going so that I'm continuing to bring you guys good stories, because we all really need a distraction right now. So thank you all for your support. For those of you who are on Patreon, thank you for your patronage. It means a lot, especially right now. Those of you who are in economically secure positions and can afford to 
continue to sponsor artists during this time of uncertainty. I would encourage you to continue doing that and to even increase your uh, your support for people if you can, because there's a lot of people who don't have the benefit of a steady salary job who are really feeling the hit on this uh, this whole pandemic thing and are likely to continue to do so for probably the next 18 months until a vaccine is available. So thank you for your support. Thank you for spreading the word about The Raven and the Writing Desk and about my my fiction to people who might be uh, looking for something to distract them in this, this difficult time. And uh, I will keep bringing you stories, and uh, we'll get through this together one way or another. So thank you all, and I'll talk to you again soon. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.